This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name is Adele, and I will be presenting this edition of BZE, which we have named Wild Places. Tonight's show takes us to the Adelaide fringe of the Labor Party conference. Vivian Langford was there, your regular host for BZE Radio, and found the ALP was very well connected to the community groups fighting to the causes of climate change. If you're a regular listener with our program, you will know that we aim to raise awareness and create action for a carbon emission-free future. And as we know, climate action involves preserving wild places from oil drilling, logging and disturbance. Across the next hour, I will be playing interviews about wild places with your regular host, Vivian Langford. So first up, Vivian interviews the author, Tim Winton, on swimming with giant whales. Taking a swimming with giant whales, Winton describes a moment when he comes up against a colossal eye and realises it is not going to harm him as it lifts its flipper, huge as an aeroplane wing, to let him pass. In Adelaide, Winton was telling the ALP Fringe the things we have to be proud of in the protection of whale nurseries and why it is time to reform our, our environmental laws. So sit tight and listen to this interview with Tim Winton for about 16 minutes. As some of you will know, I, I make up stuff for a living. Uh, but this morning, uh, I'm going to tell you a true story. Uh, and it'll sound improbable, I know. Uh, and if only a few years ago, it would have been downright impossible uh, for reasons I'll get to later, reasons that are uh, pertinent to why we're here today. You see, late in life, I seem to have uh, developed a new enthusiasm. Uh, it's more of a passion than a hobby. And it proves, I think, that you... You can teach an old dog new tricks. Um, I used to be known as a wunderkind. Hard to believe, I know. Um, even harder to believe just how much it bothered me as a young man to be called something like that. A wunderkind or an enfant terrible. They just sounded like poncy, foreign-sounding ways of calling someone a weirdo. Um, and, you know, poor little me. Um, well, obviously things panned out all right because um, I got to be old and unexceptional like everybody else. But... Uh, this old dog does have a new thing. Uh, I'm into swimming with whales. And I've been doing it for a few years now. And I tell you, there's nothing quite like it. Um, and there aren't many places in the world you can do this every day of the week. But I know a place up north, uh, and in winter it's lousy with humpbacks. Thousands of the buggers. These whales, they pull in uh, every, every winter uh, to have their babies and nurse them. And they stick around resting uh, and socialising for months. And uh, as my wife and I have got more um, interested in them, we started going out in the boat and um, taking photos of them, doing the right thing, of course, and, you know, observing all the protocols and keeping our distance. And it's been great um, to see these huge creatures rocketing out of the water and slamming down with a noise you can hear from five miles away, um, watching them slap their fins and feed their young and... Even watching them sleep is pretty impressive. So we're out there a season or two, snapping away, learning stuff about the way they socialise and organise. And um, we just figured that the fascination was entirely one way. But pretty soon we discovered these giants were curious about us. And it didn't matter how far away you stayed, eventually some of them were going to come over and check you out. And I mean, go the full-on sticky beak. Uh, they've got this particular pattern of behaviour. Um, they do a kind of drive-by, and it's a bit like being a kid in a country town with L, or with L plates, you know. You do bog laps uh, until, I think in South Australia it's called chucking a mani, um, which I love the sound of that. But you just drive up and down the main street until the, the, the local talent finally cottons on to how awesome you are. Um, everybody remember that? Um, so these whales are doing that, and they're going past in pairs, and then they'll pull off a little bit, and they'll, they'll confer. And you can imagine them talking to each other. It's like, that one over there, he's so into you. Go and, go and talk to him. No, no, you, you talk to them. That's what it's like. And they're going past maybe 50 metres um, away, and then, uh, you know, and then they'll 
that would do a U-turn and then I'll come back and a bit closer and I'll chuck another U-E and then until they're coming by so close that they're just eyeballing you shamelessly. You know, it wasn't like they wound the window down and they're checking you out. Um, and after that, things will go a bit quiet. They'll dive um, and often as not, they'll just go under the boat and swim around and turn the boat around and, and then they'll pop up next to the boat give a big stinky blow, which reeks, believe me. Um, and when they, and they, sometimes they, they'll go perpendicular. It's called spy hopping, and they'll, they'll lean into the boat to suss you out. And the first time that happened, we nearly shat ourselves. Um, Five-metre boat, 15-metre animal. Um, you, can, you can imagine. But what finally got our attention um, was more significant than their size. It was the scale of their curiosity, the quality of their attention. They're trying to figure out what we are, what part of this floating mass is contraption and what's creature, which bit's alive. So in the end, to, to be neighbourly, I guess, um, we obliged them by uh, separating ourselves from the boat. We started getting in the water with them. And that's when they got really excited and the fun really began. And it's a pretty amazing thing to be in the water with an animal as big as a greyhound bus um, and having it swim right up in your face to feel you out. That's exactly what's happening. Their, their whole bodies are seismic instruments. And they're reading our heartbeats. They're literally feeling us out. And they'll stay for an hour sometimes, right up next to you, underneath you. And they're like a dolphin that needs quite a bit more operating space than a dolphin. Uh, I mean, they're massive, so it's a little unnerving. Um, and they could, you know, they could kill you in a moment, you know, by design or just by accident, because... Even megafauna make mistakes. Um, but they're fascinated. They're enchanted. They, they seem genuinely intrigued. And this meeting of neighbours at the species fence, it's a new thing for all of us. And I, obviously I can't speak for the whales, but personally I feel very lucky uh, and privileged to be, of, you know, to be able to have done this. Half the time now we don't even use the boat anymore. Um, we just paddle out on our sups, on our stand-up paddle boards. That's a bit more hardcore because uh, really then it's, there's no b buffer. There's really just you and them and you and whatever else is in the water that day. Um, dolphins, manta rays, sea snakes, tiger sharks. Um, I had a marlin swim up alongside me last year. And talk about mutual surprise. I mean, a marlin, you know, why the long face? LAUGHTER <laughs> um, so I was out there one afternoon last spring on, on, the, on, the, on the boards and uh, my wife was with me and we'd had about 20 humpbacks uh, coming and going um, for about uh, half an hour or so and the water was like glass uh, and there was just no wind at all, which was just as well because we were a bit more than a mile out by then. Um, and there was this particularly engaged trio, um, three animals, a, a cow, a calf uh, and another adult. The third whale tends to be the escort, um, and usually it's the calf that's most keen to interact. Um, the escort often isn't interested, it's usually got a job to do, um, so it stays off. Um, this day it was the mother that was the most curious, and I could see her rounding the calf off away from us, uh, keeping him at a safe distance, um, but it was only so she could come in and check us out, and uh, so I've, you know, she she started heading in toward us and so I figured, you know, fine, she looks keen, I'll, I'll hop in with her. So I take my hat and my sunnies off and I put it on the board with my paddle, get in the water, hang onto my board and behind me, um, maybe about 10 metres behind me, Denise, my wife, uh, does the same thing. Don't really know what was going on that day but because uh, usually when a whale comes in to check you out, they're just mooching along, they're hardly, they're hardly even in gear. Um, this old girl, she was a bit of a lead foot. Um, I mean, she was really hammered down. She was making a big bow wave. Um, and I'm like, whoa. Um, because if you see four or five male humpbacks swimming like that, you definitely stay in the boat. Um, or if you're on a board, you, um, you just paddle home as discreetly as you can, um, whistling your lucky tune. Because um, that's a kind of a wild bunch scenario. Um, a posse of bulls like that is about as welcome as a call from a factional boss on Christmas Eve. Um, anyway, soccer mum drives by so quick that um, even at a distance of 
30 metres, um, we're just left turning circles in the water. She's pushing that much water. So we're hanging on to our boards and I just couldn't figure it out. It was like she was doing school pickup and the Range Rover was on the blink and um, she's had to borrow the Beamer off the neighbours and she's not used to the acceleration and she's late getting Daphne to ballet. Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but she just fangs past and then she does a handbrake turn. Um, and, she come, and she comes back and repeats the procedure even, even closer, um, maybe about 10 metres off, and we're just barely hanging onto our boards um, when we're spinning in her wake. And then she gets real personal. Um, and she comes in really close. This time, thankfully, with the throttle backed off a bit, um, it was almost as though she's got the seat adjusted properly, um, <laughs> finally. Or she's just managed to get control over her own excitement, I suspect. Um, so she comes in slower and steadier, and that's kind of reassuring for me um, because I can feel my heart rate rising and my teeth are starting to tingle. You know that old feeling that you get? Um, by the time she comes in and her nose is level with me, um, she's so close I can literally touch her, and I don't. And she's got this big pervy eye right in my face as, as she's coming by and she's seriously checking me out. Uh, I mean, she's very, very close. Um, and this is all terribly exciting, as you can imagine, um, in a shitting yourself sort of way. But then I'm thinking, pecs, pecs. I mean, hers, not mine. Mine are beyond saving. Um, I'm, what I'm thinking is, what's she going to do with her pectoral fins? Because they're like wings. Uh, they're huge. Um, and I know that she can crank them down, and of course that's what I'm hoping and praying that she's going to do, because um, if she doesn't pull the near side fin in as she comes past me, um, she's going to cut me in half. Um, those things are five metres long, they weigh a tonne, uh, they're about that fat, at the, and the leading edge is all knobbly and barnacled like a, something that a Viking would use as a um, negotiating instrument. <laughs> so I'm wondering right at this moment, you know, if this was all such a good idea. And none of this could happen 40 years ago, not even 30 years ago. I wasn't thinking this at the time. Uh, this was a thought I had the luxury of having afterwards. In that moment, I think I was incapable of mentation of any description. So what happened? Um, well, at the last moment, she just makes an adjustment. She doesn't pull that wing in the way I'm hoping and praying that she will. No, she decides to lift it. Um, so a second before this huge appendage just mows me down, um, she lifts it out of the water uh, as if she's about to swat me and turn me into you know middle-aged, sun-cured pate. Um, and the sky disappears, and there's this thing like an aircraft wing going over the top of me, and there's water pouring off it onto my head. My wife's screaming, I'm screaming. <laughs> um, and this big old girl just shrugs her fin back in, makes a little subtle adjustment, um, drops it back into the water and just goes on silently by as if she's seen what she's come to see. She's got a job to do, a kid to feed, and she just ploughs on. Um, and, you know, I paddled home in a state best described as elevated. <laughs> um, and as I keep saying, this scene just couldn't have happened when I was a young man. Um, because back then... It's not as if um, yeah, there just weren't enough whales left in the ocean to make encounters like this possible, let alone routine, as they have become um, for us. Because we'd hunted them to the brink of extinction. And we didn't let up in that little enterprise here until 1978. This is pretty personal for me because I grew up in Australia's last whaling town. I saw sperm whales butchered as a matter of routine. And if you've ever seen a, a whale decapitated by a steam-driven saw, uh, it's an image that you're not going to... It's taken more than one lifetime to forget that. So my experience of normal has changed over time. And thankfully, my culture has evolved. Why? How? Well, because ordinary citizens demanded change. And governments, to their credit, listened. New environmental laws were written and... New cultural norms were born. The whales I'm lucky enough to swim with are living emblems of that change and those laws. Every winter they congregate at a place called Exmouth Gulf near Ningaloo Reef. They're part of one of the great conservation success stories of our time, something Australians can be proud to have been a part of. And thank God those whales are now protected. 
But you know, the great sheltered waterway that these whales take refuge in every winter, uh, it has almost no protection. Exmouth Gulf is nearly 50 times the size of Sydney Harbour. It's one of the last intact arid zone estuaries left in the world. It's a haven for endangered dugongs, turtles and migratory birds. It supports 850 species of fish alone. The IUCN says it has world heritage values. We call it Ningaloo's nursery. But it's not even a marine park, let alone a world heritage property. And in 2020, a heavy engineering multinational called Subsea 7 wants to build a gas pipe facility there. And this last matter is before the West Australian EPA right now. In every state of our federation, there are communities boiling with anxiety and frustration. And the reason for their concern is pretty straightforward. Because experience has taught these citizens that when it comes to defending the places they love, every step of the process is weighted in favour of the corporation. The Labor Party has a proud legacy at Ningaloo. One I hope it will honour. And federally, it has a proud record on marine parks. One I hope it will reclaim from the bastardry and bad faith of the past five years. Out amongst the humpbacks and dugongs, down in the mangroves and corals, right across this island continent, in the rivers and forests, there are legacies to defend. But opportunities as well. To build on historic leaps forward. To secure them and add to them with stronger laws, more equitable processes, more responsive agencies to move our culture on and up beyond business as usual because business as usual is killing our country. It's weakening our communities and it's threatening our democracy. Business as usual is not about the fair go. It's inimical to a fair go. I know what it's like to be subject, just for a moment, to something mighty. To be spared by a force of nature that owes me nothing. But the natural world is now at our mercy, and we owe it our very existence. Our children's lives depend on the decisions we make now. The quality of mercy we're willing to extend now. So, giving life to life honouring and protecting the world that sustains and renews us, that's now a vital part of the fair go. For our neighbours, for those unborn, for a just society, for our very survival as a species. Justice begins with the dirt under our feet, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. It's time to reform our environmental laws to reflect this reality. It's time to step up and get this right. Comrades, it's time to get serious about a fair go for nature. Wow, what a picture Tim Winton has painted for us of swimming with whales. That was magical, and as he says, it was mighty. Next up, we have an interview with Peter Owen on drilling in the Great Australian Bight. Peter Owen is from the Wilderness Society in Adelaide. He speaks to Vivian about the Great Australian Bite Whale Nursery. He says there is no time to be expanding, sorry, this is no time to be expanding the oil industry. Even though BP and Chevron have pulled out, Norwegian company Equinor is still trying. The mayor of Kangaroo Island took the wishes of half a million citizens to their AGM in Norway and Peter urges the ALP to commit to shutting down the fossil fuel industry. Uh, tonight's show is about... The story is about a Norwegian called Equinor. It's about a nursery for whales and kelp forests to rival the Amazon. It's about 10,000 workers who would be put out of business if Equinor had an accident way out off the South Australian coast in the deep waters of the Great Australian Bight. We've got Peter Owens from the Wilderness Society talking to us now from Adelaide. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Um, can you tell us first why climate activists should take an interest in this new girl called Equinor? Yes, well, um, for some years now we've been uh, working to try and stop the oil industry expanding uh, into the Great Australian Bight whale nursery. Now, the Great Australian Bight is one of the most significant marine wilderness areas left on the planet. 
it's a completely uh, inappropriate place to be trying to industrialise. But uh, that that included right now in history, it is a completely inappropriate time to be pushing to expand the oil industry and the fossil fuel industry, if you like, because of climate change. We need to be transitioning rapidly out of the existing industry, not looking to expand it further. So over the last few years, we've had BP and Chevron pushing to get approvals to drill in the bite. They've both responsibly withdrawn those applications now and pulled out. But unfortunately, we've still got uh, a company which is two-thirds Norwegian government-owned called Equinor pushing on trying to get approvals in this magnificent marine wilderness area. So we're encouraging them, obviously, to, to follow the lead of BP and Chevron and withdraw. Encouraging sounds rather mild. I have a feeling it's almost like this rapacious thing to drill for oil in the Arctic. It's a very dangerous area. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a totally inappropriate place. Drilling for oil in the Arctic, the Antarctic, the Great Australian Bight, all of these areas should be off limits um, purely because they're magnificent environments that we should be looking to protect. Um, but also, we, we can't afford to be expanding the fossil fuel industry. That's, that's complete lunacy, complete irresponsible behaviour at this point in history when the climate is, is seriously damaged and, and we need to transition out of the existing fossil fuel industry to have any chance. I'd imagine, of providing our children with a livable climate. Yes, I'm, I'm surprised really from Norway because they have profited from North Sea oil, but you would think that would be, that's they're famously for putting that in their sovereign wealth fund and having very pro-climate action policies. You know, I'm surprised that it's them um, doing this reckless project because even the, all the modelling shows that it's very risky and very reckless. Mm, I mean, it, they... They need to actually walk the walk. They're talking the talk at, at their their AGM just just this year past. The mayor, the then mayor of Kangaroo Island, a fellow called Peter Clements, essentially took the took the wishes and the message of councils right across southern Australia, representing well over half a million people now, to the the Equinor AGM over in Norway and said, "Look, you're not welcome here." And at that at that very AGM, they changed their name from Statoil to Equinor because apparently they're moving into renewables and they're moving away from oil and fossil fuels. So uh, that does seem somewhat confusing, given what they're trying to do in the Great Australian Bight. Mm. Um, but obviously we, we welcome their renewable energy technology in Australia. We just don't welcome them putting the Great Australian Bight at risk uh, and putting our climate at risk in terms of pumping more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. I mean, both of those things are, are not risks that uh, we can afford to be taking. Do you think um, Australian listeners would do well if they could get a letter into the newspapers in Norway or into the Guardian or, you know, the international press so that people, because this is a very remote area, people really probably haven't heard about it. Do you think that's a good um, gesture? Well, cer cer certainly we would encourage people to, to, to send letters to the Equinor board, um, to the, the company itself, to the board or to the Norwegian government, given they're a two-third uh, majority shareholder in this company. Um, yeah, we've we've ha had people working in Norway. We have at the moment. There's been protests only recently out the front of the Norwegian Parliament, uh, with with people uh, you know speaking on the steps there and talking about the beauty of the Great Australian Bight and the fact that it's a, it's a, probably one of the most significant whale nurseries in the world. Um, you know, home to 85% of the species that are found nowhere else on Earth. You know, we can't afford to be putting this magnificent place at risk, but also we, we can't afford to be allowing the oil industry to expand. It's, it's just not viable if we're going to have a livable climate into the future. It's, it's something that must be stopped. Well, I saw some research, um, I think it was a leaked document, about the, uh, that the impact of it, and I think it was also in that film, um, Operation Jidara, where they yes. showed if there was an oil spill, like the Deep Horizon, you know, Gulf, Mexican Gulf oil spill, if, yep. something like that, it would radiate out along the South Australian coast, around Kangaroo Island, right around to Victoria, and even in some of the publications I saw up to Bondi Beach. So this is massive, um, and I imagine it's a remote area. There's not a lot of help available if that did happen to go and um, mop up all the oil. This is kind of a... This is the big risk, isn't it? The risk of an accident in that that makes it... Uh... Most, most definitely. I mean, we've known for a couple of years now the magnitude of the risk. And when, when BP were pushing for an approval from the Australian regulator, Nopsema, a couple of years back, uh, they were going through their consultation process and we were asking them to release their oil spill modelling. 
so that our membership could could understand the magnitude of the risk that was being essentially imposed on the Australian people, uh, but also their all pollution emergency plans. And that is how they're going to deal with that risk should it happen. So how are they going to mop it up? But anyway, they were the two things they refused to release right through the consultation process, mm-hmm. making a mockery of the consultation, really. So the Wilderness Society commissioned its own independent oil spill modelling. Uh, which which showed the magnitude of the risk is, is just diabolical and something that can't uh, be allowed to happen. But then what was interesting, a week or so before BP announced that they were withdrawing their plan to drill for oil in the bite, they released their oil spill modelling, which actually made the Wilderness Societies look conservative because at the time we were very cautious yeah. with what we put out in the public because we knew we'd be accused of all sorts of fear-mongering and things. So anyway, so we have there's now three lots of oil spill modelling out in the public. The Wilderness Society's independent modelling, BP's modelling that they released just before they pulled out, and now these leaked documents from Equinor, which show that the process is getting worse and worse and worse. Um, so, yeah, it's it, given the information we now know, um, I guess you could argue that, you know, seven or eight years ago when the government started releasing acreage in the bite here, they didn't they didn't know the magnitude of the risk, I guess, because mm. that's since, since been, uh, I guess, established through the, the studies that the various companies and independent organisations like the Wilderness Society have, have done through gathering information. Uh, but now that we do know that, it's a very irresponsible regulator that would approve something like this. It's a very irresponsible government official that would be encouraging these companies to go out here. And in fact, I would argue it's a very irresponsible company to pursue uh, drilling in the bite, given the magnitude of the risk. And also given the fact that it's very obvious that that uh, the people of Southern Australia don't support this. There's mm. now something like 14 councils that have passed resolutions raising serious concern with what's proposed. You know, that... Those councils represent, like I said, well over half a million people. That type of thing's unheard of in Australia. You know, the, the size of the opposition to what's being proposed here is huge. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I don't know much about it. I've only seen that film, Jadara, and um, I think, you know, people understand a lot of people perhaps go there for tourism around the uh, Kangaroo Island, but I didn't know, for example, that the greatest fisheries are there. That's where Australia's greatest fisheries are there. A lot of fishing jobs yep. uh, yes. I bet, you know, dependent on that. So tourism and fisheries in balance with uh, profits. But I don't know if you heard or have seen yet the new environmental protection laws that the ALP is really spruiking now. They, at the conference in Adelaide, they were talking it up, but I didn't um, hear too much detail. But if they get into federal government, they seem to think they're going to have more teeth in environmental protection. Do you think that would be uh, something to encourage them to push you know, push ahead with it um, in relation to marine protection? Look, certainly we need as stronger laws as we can get at both a federal level, at a state level and a local level. But, but what we actually need is for government to commit to stopping drilling in the bite, to commit to stopping, you know, the expansion of the coal industry up in Queensland and the Dani. You know, we need some very clear commitments from the ALP on yeah. that. Um, you know, it's good to see that they're, they're looking to strengthen the federal environmental laws and that's, that's obviously encouraged. Um, but, but we need some very clear statements from the ALP around how they're going to stop the expansion of the fossil fuel industry immediately. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, um, it's too... You're on tenterhooks all the time. It's pushing everything down into the future and we haven't got time. No, I mean, on the, on the climate side of things, we need some... There's just some very clear lines in the sand that need to be drawn. Uh, you know, the expansion of the fossil fuel industry must stop immediately. Right. Um, and we certainly need as stronger federal laws as, as, as we can get because we have an extinction crisis... Uh, you know, we need laws that can address those things, uh, but we need some very strong commitments immediately from the ALP that they will stop the expansion of the fossil fuel industry. I mean, no political party can claim to be serious about climate change if they're not willing to do that. OK. Well, we're just talking to Peter Owen from um, Wilderness Society in Adelaide. Peter, just to finish, could you now paint us a picture of the life under the sea there. I once said to a Greenpeace person about this subject, I said, well, there's nothing much between the south of Australia and Antarctica, and he practically fell off his seat. He was so upset by me. He said, there's kelp forests under there, you know, sequestering carbon, and there's massive marine life, and you know, I was, yeah. you know, I was, I was a bit shamefaced because I don't know, and, and can, but it's under the water, so most of us perhaps don't know. Can you paint us a picture? Yeah. Well, I mean, the bite—the bite's home to to some of the biggest 
of the whale species on the planet, huge pods of dolphins, huge schools of tuna, great white sharks. It's, it's literally the marine environment um, uh, well, on steroids, if you like. It's, it, it, some of the huge marine animals frequent both live in the bight and move through the bight. It's, it's a magnificent place a place covered in state and federal marine parks in, in acknowledgement of the importance of this area. As I said before, 85% of the species in the bite are found nowhere else on Earth. So a catastrophic oil spill here would be an extinction event of probably unparalleled uh, you know, proportions. So it's an area that must be protected. Uh, we're pushing as strongly as we can to get, get commitments from the federal ALP and, and the current government, but particularly the federal ALP, um, you know, as they're obviously pushing to be our next next federal government. We want a clear commitment that they will protect the bite and protect our climate. Okay. Well, listeners, you can see the film. It's Jadara, and I think Bob Brown Foundation was involved in it. Um, Peter, can you tell us some of the other groups that are in this big alliance to save the Great Yeah, Australian so the Great Australian Bite Alliance was launched a couple of years ago uh, by the Wilderness Society in South Australia. Uh, and Sea Shepherd um, as well as a whole lot of other community groups across the southern Australian coast and then many groups have joined the Bob Brown Foundation, Patagonia recently uh, and others so it's it's now probably one of the biggest the biggest uh, environmental alliances in the country Um, and you know all of those groups are pushing together uh, to to protect this magnificent place so yeah the Great Australian Bio Alliance is essentially a, a platform for community groups environment groups and individuals to stand together in opposition to what the oil industry and, and government officials are pushing to do, high-risk offshore drilling. Uh, so we're pushing opposed to that and we're advocating for the protection of the bite. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So, uh, listeners, if you look up Great Australian Bite Alliance, I'm sure there'll be plenty of things you can do. Is there actions that you're advising people to take? Yeah, there is. And if also if people follow closely the, the Wilderness Society South Australia Facebook site, uh, the Great Australian Bite Alliance Facebook site. Uh, there's all sorts of things that uh, and, and ways people can get involved with the campaign. Fabulous. Thank you very much. We've been talking to Peter Owen from uh, Adelaide. Thanks, Peter. We've been striking on and off since the 1st of November. All over the world, school-aged kids are on strike to demand action on climate change. In Melbourne, the school strike is running from 12 till 2pm on Friday the 15th of March at the Treasury Building on Spring Street in the city. At 3CR, we believe that action on climate change is urgently required. There will be no community radio on a dead planet. So today, we come together with our friends at Joy 94.9, SIN and Triple R in support of our youth and their message to our leaders to take urgent action on climate change. For more information, go to studentstrikeforclimate.com. Tarkine Wilderness is in the northwest of Australia's island state of Tasmania. While unknown to many Australians, in 2013 the Tarkine was honoured by CNN Travel in the United States as number one on its list of the top ten remote places on the planet. Named after the Tarkina people who lived along its coastline for thousands of years before European dispossession, the Tarkine is rich in Aboriginal heritage. This includes the sites of huts, like this one on a scenic coastal knoll, ancient engravings like these on shoreline boulders, and numerous stone implements. Even older is the Tarkine's natural heritage. This is the global stronghold of rare and endangered species like the Tasmanian devil, the spotted-tailed quoll, the world's largest freshwater crayfish, and Tasmania's wedge-tailed eagle. These giant eagles have a wingspan of up to three metres. The Tarkine's coastline is blasted by the roaring 40 winds, which bring it the cleanest air on Earth, and in winter, waves five storeys high, which pound the rocky outcrops. In summer, the Tarkine's beaches are patterned by the amber waters of rivulets, which drain the buttongrass plains further inland. Further east, in the ancestral lands of the Tomagini people, is Australia's largest temperate rainforest. This ancient rainforest decks the mountainsides as well as the Tarkine's pristine, west-flowing rivers. 
In 2004, the Howard government put an end to logging here. Then, in 2013, the Australian Heritage Council advised the Gillard government to protect the whole of the Tarkine by placing it on the list of Australia's national heritage. But Environment Minister Tony Burke rejected this advice and opened 96% of the Tarkine, including most of its rainforest, to mining exploration. Burke then gave his go-ahead for a first open-cut mine in the Tarkine's so-called protected area. The mining company plans to gouge a hole more than one kilometre across and 250 metres deep. There are 55 other applications for mineral exploration, including in the rainforest heartland. The Tarkine should be protected for its obvious world heritage values. One powerful thing stands between that world heritage listing and the mining trash bag for the Tarkine, and that is public opinion. You can help. Write to your federal MP, donate to the Save the Tarkine campaign, or better still, visit the Tarkine yourself. Go for a walk, photograph a waterfall, enjoy a cruise, or simply relax in the Tarkine Wilderness Lodge before taking a morning stroll in the rainforest. Because to go to the Tarkine is to want to save it. And together, we can. Welcome back, listeners. You're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions. My name is Adele. Next up, we have an interview with Jenny Weber on the importance and beauty of the Tarkine. Jenny Weber spoke to Vivian beside the Torrens River recently and discussed the Tarkine River. She tells us about the fun runs and the yantra walks the Bob Brown Foundation is organising to lure us all down to Tasmania so that we can witness for ourselves the majesty and ancient wildness of the area. Yes, these are carbon sinks of in, inestimate in importance, but they are so much more. So uh, definitely your les- listeners might be interested in the range of activities. There's a uh, trail run happening, mm. which is quite unique for us at the yeah. Bob Brown Foundation, of course. Realistically, it is a, a fundraising opportunity for the Bob Brown Foundation to have 100 runners run through the Tarkine um, with minimal impact, of course. Uh, however, it was after the Patagonia film this year, which was launched in June, that we worked with Patagonia on a fantastic documentary about the threats and beauty of the Tarkine. And we had some volunteers contact us and say, we were inspired by the film and we'd mm-hmm. love to work with you and, and organise this trail run. So that'll be happening on the 5th of April. We also have another community um, group who's contacted us who are going to be doing a meditation walk. They call it a yantra yantra walk. Um, And so, again, these people were inspired by the campaign and and wanted to get out into the Tarkine. And so they've had such popularity that they're going to be running two of those walks. So these are just the way that we can see that the campaign is getting out there more broadly to more people across Australia and across the world, which is actually the most important thing is for people to understand that the Tarkine is intact, it is threatened and it's ancient and wild and mm. needs protection. I always feel guilty because I do this climate program and I look at a forest, I go carbon sequestration. I've even interviewed a scientist who can actually establish how many dollars worth of carbon is in a forest, a given forest. And I think that's a terrible approach. And I think I need a bit of a counterbalance and go and stroll through the dark kind and get my values a bit more in line. But around the world, there's a huge amount of logging. And at the uh, COP, uh, Poland, uh, COP24 Congress, apparently rainforest people were very disappointed by the lack of ambition there. And I know in Malaysia, you've been to Malaysia, that company Ta'an is active there and there's around the world there are countries that are very compromised by the lucrative logging Mm. that they can do. Mm. So what's your answer to that? What's the counterbalance? Yes, I mean, frightfully, uh, Tasmania has just been told that we're going to be having a second Sarawakian company, uh, not Sarawakian, actually Sarawakian are the indigenous people of Sarawak. We're actually going to have one of the um, big timber mafia companies, a second one. I mean, how on earth the small state of Tasmania can have a a giant logging company come from Sarawak and um, 
basically continue to receive timber from the flattening of the forest that our government is involved in in Tasmania. It's really important as a global citizen um, you know, to recognise that the climate is changing, it's having disastrous effects already across the globe and we know that intact forests can contribute to solving that solu- the, solving the problems. At least it won't um, uh, you know, immediately solve problems but it will actually give us an opportunity into the future. Um, absolutely, you're, you're too right about the COP uh, conference which has just finished. We've had some extraordinary Australians over there standing up for forests globally. Uh, Peg Putt from the Environmental Paper Network and Virginia Young from the Australian Rainforest Conservation Society have been working really hard in that, in that forum for the last um, fortnight and really um, the bad news is out of that COP um, conference for forests is that the um, burning of native forests for what people think is renewable energy is something that's really building across the globe and there was not able to be um, the, the gains that were needed in those negotiations to remove um, burning of native forests out of uh, the Paris Agreement. And this is what we've got to realise is that, sure, we've been seeing logging across the world in so many uh, different ways, clearing in the Amazon, clearing in Sarawak for uh, palm oil and for um, agriculture. We've been seeing here in Australia the extinction crisis as a result of the logging of forests in Victoria, New South Wales, uh, Western Australia and uh, Tasmania. And um, that was more so for the, the timber products. Um, it, it's high time that these areas um, of intact forests are protected. Mm. And sadly, the direction that the, the global community is going instead is to um, remove the trees from nature and put them into these giant furnaces and uh, pretend that it's renewable energy. And um, we're, in, we're still in really big trouble with mm. forests, uh, with climate, and um, so much uh, sensible approach, so much more of a sensible, sensible approach would be to protect these intact forests. Yeah. I guess that's part of why we at the Bob Brown Foundation tries at any level that we can, from the grassroots, organising, having people into the Tarkine, mm. um, into these conferences and being able to let the, remind the ALP that they can take real action. Yeah. And um, while there's some, there's some movement here around new environmental laws and a new environmental protection authority from the ALP, um, we are concerned that there also needs to be real action on uh, reducing logging, ruling out native forest logging, protecting um, intact landscapes and protecting the world heritage values of of places such as the Tarpa. Well yesterday they did pass um, into their platform, you know, new environmental law, so if they form government they'll put that into place, this is a national law, it'll have more teeth than the environmental protection that we've got now that doesn't seem to protect anything very much. Are you uh, have you read it? I haven't read the document yet but um, did you get an impression from that that the things that you want to see that are to do with climate proofing our country and the world, you know, like to stop the things on a, in terms of climate protection, um, any of those in there? So um, we at the Bob Brown Foundation have two of our campaigners and our Canberra lobbyists here at this ALP conference this, this um, last couple of days and, and we, we did sit through the debate yesterday and, and the conversations um, that the ALP was having about the environment. Look, more can be done. Um, they're important. Remember, we need to remember that um, the environment laws that we have right now are, are problematic because we don't, haven't had an environment minister who has had the teeth, um, who has had the guts to take real action on the environment. Um, The EPBC Act has been a a major problem because we have had ministers that keep failing the environment. Absolutely right now in Australia we have a government that is bereft of any environmental policy and and climate policy and and so we are in in big trouble. So sure, the ALP could only do better if they get government um, at the next election. However, they still need to not hide behind their new environment laws and their new environment protection authority to say that that is enough. Mm. And it's never going to be enough as long as uh, forests are still being flattened, as long as the Adani mine is being pushed ahead. And there are some key, um, there are some key environmental gains that can be made, and that's what the government can do. 
However, it's up to the voters, and the voters need to vote for people who are going to take real action on climate and real action on the environment and stop Adani, protect native forests, uh, prevent the extinction of of all these um, incredible fauna that we have here in Australia, and particularly for your listeners in Victoria to just consider... Uh, what will the ALP do for the leadbeater possum and the greater glider? And what will they do to protect uh, the water catchments of Melbourne? And um, is it enough that these um, laws are going to be introduced? I, I can't be confident right now without the detail um, and I can't be confident without the commitments from the ALP to take those um, extraordinary steps that we've seen in the history of labour to actually make real protection for, mm. ta- for Australia's landscapes. And that's why we're here about uh, Tarkline, calling for a national park and world heritage area and return to Aboriginal ownership. And, and this morning we've heard from um, the communities who are fighting fracking. I mean, yeah. to not rule out fracking, um, there's just some... I know that there's big corporations that are, that are in power in Australia. However, we are in a democracy and we want to see a government that takes on those corporations the benefit of the people and the environment. Yeah. My worry is that the media don't cover these conferences very well. They get a, I've seen them up there just five minutes with a minister and it's a kind of a sound grab, a bit of a scene visual, and then they're off again. And then covering this in detail, you and I have both sat through, sat through a moving ser- uh, session on fracking. It really was moving, hearing the Aboriginal people, the top engineer person who, who knows about it, Tim Forsey, um, someone also an economist talking about how it's not even actually financially uh, uh, lucrative for mm. Australia. But uh, that story, I don't think, in all those details, will get through. Mm. And uh, people vote without knowing that. Mm. What do you think? Well, see, I think that these... Um, I mean, this is the first time I've ever been to a conference like this from the ALP, and I think that they're very... Interesting to see that they they do provide for their members and uh, their delegates to attend um, forums from NGOs and citizens who are asking of them. So I I find that those internal conversations are are, are beneficial, of course, for being able to have um, the people, the real people who are facing these issues, um, be accessed. Um, true, I, I believe that the, the media has a huge role to play in disseminating information and raising awareness about the issues of, of uh, climate change and uh, Stop Adani. And I think that um, while it may have upset a lot of people yesterday, the, the interruption that is necessary of people's everyday lives to understand that um, this is a major um, threat to the entire what planet... Happened? with um, the protester who went up on stage and held up a Stopadani placard and was able to interrupt um, Bill Shorten. And, you know, these sorts of things in a democracy are important because you you really need to understand that that Bill Shorten and the ALP can have the power to say, we will stop Adani. Um, There were also the the refugee advocates who got up on stage and and made their statement too. And and I think it's important for us to recognise that protesters have a very important role to play and and the media um, coverage was was possible then. Also, the Great Australia Bite Alliance, which the Bob Brown Foundation is part of, also had a demonstration out the front yesterday and and they got um, important media coverage. Um, I think, if anything, uh, there are some uh, reports from The Guardian that that are right here in the thick of it who are updating frequently about what's going on here at this um, conference. And and it's it's important for um, them to be able to spread to the public the awareness that um, you know these people here are here making big decisions and they may very well be the next government. Okay. Uh, however, it's also important to remember that you have to look further than the media um, lines, for example, around the environment laws, is that not everything is okay with the ALP and the environment and um, it will be up to the citizens and the voters and the people out there who want to defend nature to keep yeah. at it with the ALP and with the current government yeah. to just keep standing up for environment and climate and get action. Okay, just to finish, Bob Brown said if they start digging up at Adani, he'll be the first up there on a convoy of cars. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was sort of fighting words. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure they're waiting for a trigger to know when when to go. But can you just tell the listeners who to plug into to know if they want to join that? Yes, that's right. I mean, we join many other groups that are really working hard against the Adani mine. And 
it's very inspiring to see frontline action on coal who are already up there ready to take action, setting up their base camp. Uh, the, the youth and people out on the streets protesting and the uh, Australian Youth Climate Coalition and SEED, um, you know, all these groups doing some great work. Our contribution at the Bob Brown Foundation with Bob Brown will be to lead a car convoy of uh, people who want to drive from Hobart, anywhere across um, Australia, want to join us along the way up to um, Bowen and we'll join the Frontline on Action, Action on Coal uh, base camp. This will um, only happen, of course, if substantial works uh, get started on the mine and thankfully there's a number of different obstacles before that happens. There's a number of different environmental approvals that need to be given, if at all possible that they're given. And the important thing to remember is that this is Aboriginal land and the Wangan-Jangalingu people are still fighting for uh, this mine not to go ahead and really need everyone's support to back them in while they fight them in the courts. Um, if all else fails and there needs to be the car convoy, you're going to be able to um, right now sign up. We've already had 500 people sign up, which is quite extraordinary to think that all those people want to join us on our convoy. And you can go to our website, thebobbrown.org.au, and you can sign up to the car convoy and come along with us. Okay, thank you very much. So that was Jenny Weber from Bob Brown Foundation. That was Chris Wilson with I Can't Stand the Rain and you've been listening to Beyond Zero Emissions. Thank you to our guests tonight. We had Tim Winton, Peter Owen and Jenny Weber. Uh, They were all interviewed by Vivian Langford, your regular host at the Adelaide Fringe. And um, I'm your presenter for this evening, Adele Mills, and a special thank you to Andy for his technical support. FYI to our listeners, the school strike for climate will be held in Melbourne on March 15th and they need adult supporters. I believe you can head to their Facebook page for that information. Plus March 26th at 6pm at the Clyde Hotel 385 Cardigan Street, Carlton, uh, listeners are invited to meet the Climate for Change people to hear about the year ahead. So RSVP uh, Climate for Change 2019 kickoff via their Facebook page or at climateforchange.org.au. Thanks for listening to BZE. Next up, we have Communication Mixdown.